Good morning. This is Coffee with Cap, brought to you by The Program, a team building and leadership development company that works with more than 160 collegiate and professional athletic teams and corporations throughout North America annually. And I'm Eric Kapitulik, the founder and CEO of it. The program believes that talent allows us to do well in life. It allows us to win games. But a commitment to getting that much better. Put your thumb and forefinger two inches apart. That much better allows us to compete for championships on whatever our chosen battlefield may be. We get that much better by being great teammates and great team leaders. Coffee with Cap will help you be both for our families, our athletic teams, our companies, and for all the teams with whom we are privileged to be a part. Joining me today is Fred Kaufman. Actually, he's rejoining me today. Fred is an executive coach and an advisor on leadership and culture. He holds a PhD in economics from the University of California, Berkeley. He is the founder and president of the Conscious Business Center. He is the founder of Axialent, a global consulting company which delivered leadership programs to more than 15,000 executives at, to name a few, Microsoft, Yahoo, Google, Cisco, General Motors, Chrysler, Unilever, and Citibank. In 2018, Fred accepted a position as vice president at Google in charge of advising the CEO's office on leadership and culture. During the same year, he partnered with Tecnologico de Monterrey in Monterrey, Mexico, to create the Center of Conscious Leadership. Previously, he was vice president of executive development at LinkedIn. He is the author of the trilogy, Meta Management, The Meaning Revolution, and the book that we'll be discussing today, Conscious Business. Fred, namaste, and welcome back to Coffee with Cap. It's great to see you again, and I really appreciate your making the time to spend with me and us this morning. Uh, it is such a pleasure and an honor. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to, to be invited back. Thank you. Now, Fred, all of those things that you've done in your life, you know, every time we interact, Fred, I get better because of it. A better leader, a, a, a better human being. Now, I'm going to try to repay the favor to you right now in an effort to make you a better human being. Fred, do you know who Daniel Bryan is? No. No. Fred, see, this is an opportunity for me to make you, as I said, a better human being. Fred, Daniel Bryan is a WWE World Wrestling Entertainment superstar. He's a former Intercontinental Champion, United States Champion. He's four-time WWE Champion and the World Wrestling Entertainment Heavyweight Champion. My son and I, we love him. Love him. Now, he's going to play a significant part in our conversation today. 
And this is the reason why, Fred. When Daniel Bryan, when they start playing Daniel Bryan's entry music, as he, you know, like the, the, in the arenas, they start playing his music. And as he comes in, right now, Fred, Flight of the Valkyries, Fred, they start playing this, the crowd, Fred, Daniel Bryan, everybody stands up and starts doing, yes, yes, yeah, do it with, that's right, Fred, that's right, do it with me, yes, 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 that's right, Fred, all right, now, that's, that's what I feel like, Fred, every time we speak, every time I hear from you, Fred, and I know that that's how I'm going to feel and how the audience is going to feel during our conversation today. And I want to make sure that you understand when I start playing that music, Fred, we're doing yes. That's what we're doing. Now, let's discuss okay. conscious business. Fred, I'm a voracious reader. I read every single day. But very few books change my life. Conscious business did. You write about this book, Conscious Business, is the result of 15 years of work with leaders of major corporations in the United States, Europe, and South America. These leaders realized that to be successful, they needed more than technical competence. They needed to grow as people. What did these leaders learn? First, they learned that freedom, responsibility, and integrity are the keys to success, but that these qualities demand the courage to face existential anxiety. They learned that speaking the truth is essential, but that the truth that needs to be said and heard is not the one most people call truth. They learned that win-win is a powerful concept for negotiations, but only mature human beings can implement it. They learn that impeccable commitments are essential for cooperative relationships, but that they require a strong foundation of personal values. They learn that they needed to manage their emotions, but not in the stoic way they had adopted. They learn that who they are is the main determinant of what they can and cannot do. And they learn that when all is said and done, Service to others is the highest spiritual and business imperative. They also learned how to embody their freedom with confidence and inner peace. They learned to find the essential truth in themselves and others. They learned to express it and receive it with dignity and respect. They learned to tap their imagination to create options when at an impasse. They learned to establish, maintain, and repair networks of trust and coordinated actions. They learned to maintain equanimity in the face of the most difficult circumstances, simultaneously keeping their hearts open and their minds sharp. They learn that who they are, they learn that who they are is the most amazing space of possibilities in which life manifests its creative potential. And they learn how to serve others without betraying their highest goals and values. They learned in short, they learned in short, to succeed beyond success. Fred, yes. Yeah, Fred, you gotta do it with me. Fred, yes, yes, yes. yes. Fred, I want that 
Fred. I want that. Well, I was smart when I wrote that. I, 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 I don't. I mean, I'm, I'm impressed. I don't know where that came from, but uh, it sounds good when you read it. I'm, I'm touched. Yes, thank you. Fred, teach me. Teach us. How can we? What do you mean by succeed beyond success, and how can we attain it? Well, you said it. You just said it. There's a difference between winning games and winning championships, and. One of the paradoxes is that to win championships, you need to learn how to lose games. Yeah. I know this sounds shocking, but life is not linear. And the simple mind that doesn't understand the complexity of life will always end up going the wrong way. So you think that to win a championship, you need to win every game. That's not true. You think that to win a war, you need to win every battle. And that's not true. Because if you don't know how to lose, you're not resilient. You're going to get crushed the moment something doesn't go your way. And as I'm sure you know, sooner or later, that will happen. So most people think that life, a good life, for example, it's moments of pleasure succeeding one another. Like, I'm, I'm feeling good, I'm feeling good, I'm feeling good. That's not a good life. That's a miserable life. To live a good life, you need to enjoy the moments of pleasure, and you also need to enjoy the moments of pain or sorrow or anxiety and have a deeper way to integrate these moments into winning, whatever that means in life. Like winning a championship or winning a war means winning the crucial battles and learning from the other ones to get, as you said, that's much better every time. So one of the most difficult I would say lessons in life is that things are not always going in one direction at a time. You have to have a mind that can comprehend the, the non-linearity of life. I'll pause there. That's what I mean by being conscious, not to be stuck with a very simple perspective that one plus one plus one plus one is going to add up to four. I mean, yes, but in life, it's one minus one plus one plus one minus one. It's up to a hundred when you know how to use it. Yeah, Fred, you you and in the in in conscious business, one of the things that you highlight, and I and it made me think of so many of our of our own clients, whether it's the collagen pro teams that with whom we're privileged to work, or corporations, and quite frankly, parents as well. You, you highlighted that, you know, leaders will, leaders will to win the game in them sacrificing who they are, their values, sacrificing their culture to win a game is a very myopic approach to life because by doing so, by sacrificing who you are, sacrificing values, to win that short-term goal or game, we end up losing the strategic ability to win the war. Yeah, let me, uh, I, I'd like to riff on what you said. It's, it's so, I, I have to tell you, I, I, I'm, I'm very touched by um, having the conversation with you because you live these principles 
so intensely that a lot of ideas come to my mind that I never thought before, just because of our interaction. There's a mystery in the conversation that has to do with a life energy that flows, that it's, it's, it's hard to understand, but I know I'm having ideas, I promise you, I'm having ideas that I've never said before, <laughs> just in response to just the, the commitment you have to living fully with integrity. So here's what I think. You know, who we are is everything. The, the Stoic philosophers talked about a human being as a project. And they talk about the human being as the project of a daimon. A daimon, very different than a demon. In Greek, a daimon is your highest self, your spirit, the uppermost expression of your potential. So it's a very good thing. Your daimon would be like the, the good genie, the, the possibility of what you can become. And in fact, the word in, in Greek for happiness is eudaimonia which is being in harmony with your diamond or growing to be your best self. Uh, a great warrior, Arjuna, the general that goes into battle uh, under Krishna's guidance in the Bhagavad Gita, sacred book of the Indian tradition, also needs to grow to be his best self in order to, quote, win the battle. So I think at any moment in life, you have a choice to sacrifice your lower self to become your highest self or to sacrilege your highest self to become your lower self. So uh, the, the true meaning of sacrifice is to make something sacred, to elevate. So I would say you don't sacrifice the championship or yourself to win a game. You sacrilege because that's a sacrilege. That's becoming the worst that you can be. That's losing your values, losing your integrity, losing your life, losing yourself for the sake of a pittance. So that's a sacrilege. A sacrifice is when you take it, whatever it is, when you pay the price, or I mean, let me just use something in economics, you save, so you abstain from consumption in order to have a, a better position in the future. That, that's, I mean, people say, oh, so you sacrifice, but it's a good thing to sacrifice. It's, it's to take something of lower value and transform it into something of higher value. And I believe that, Every hardship has the potential to shape you into someone better. And that's what I mean by success beyond success. There's a success, it's like, okay, you won, and which is not bad, by the way. Of course, we want to succeed. You want your yeah. company to succeed. You want to win the game. That's the goal, of course. Yeah. But if you want to win the championship, as I said before, you can't fall apart when you lose a game. You have to learn how to integrate, how to learn your lesson, how to grow from that. And I love the phrase from Nietzsche that says that what doesn't kill you make you stronger. Um, but I, I, I think Nietzsche didn't go far enough. Um, I, in my spiritual beliefs, even what kills you can make you stronger because strength is not just a function of the life as we know it. Strength is a function of who you are as an energy pattern in the world. So I know you have some of your friends and ex-colleagues that are an inspiration for you. Their children are growing and you are helping them. I mean, it's so beautiful, just the, the, the ethos that you have in the special forces and in the warrior community about how you know nobody nobody's left behind. But that doesn't mean you know all the bodies can always be recovered, and yet nobody is left behind. There's there's a sense of transcendence 
which I, I deeply admire in the warrior spirit. I haven't been in the military like you, but I am absolutely inspired by the strength, the spiritual strength. And in fact, the Bhagavad Gita, which is, as I said, a very sacred book in the Indian tradition and the source of karma yoga, the yoga of action, is the story of a general going to war. How do you go to war? How do you go to a situation where you don't know the outcome and you can't control the outcome? But, you know, just to summarize what Krishna tells Arjuna, he says, perform every action as a sacrifice to me, to your highest value. Krishna is like the, the, the godly nature the, of, of the human, the, the diamond. And he says, whatever you do, do your duty with a sense of sacrifice to the highest possible values all the time. And then stop being anxious because you can't control the outcome. You know, whatever. I remember you took us, we did, we did this exercise on the beach and we went all to the beach and the boats were there and everybody had their, their shoes, their tennis shoes and was dressed, you know, all these corporate people. I said, okay, everybody hold, lock your arms. Okay, we all locked our arms in the beach. He says, step forward. And, and after three steps forward, we were in the water. And he said, step forward. And then we're all like our knees in the water. And they said, sit down and sit down and then roll around. And we were rolling in the sand. And it's like, okay. And then we, we came out and said, are you still worried about getting wet and sandy? I was and yeah. this huge laugh. And I'd say, you know, that was like, go for it. Like, like whatever you're afraid, just, just do it. And then you're not afraid anymore. And, you know, yeah, we, we were sandy and wet, but we realized the sand and the water was not the problem. Our fear was the problem. And that's, that's the big lesson. The, the mirage that blocks us in life. The temptation to be less than who we can be. And the moment you break that mirage, then you win championships. Then you cannot lose. I mean, but literally, you, it's guaranteed you cannot lose. And, and winning and losing gets redefined because it's not whatever the scoreboard says. Winning is doing your best, being excellent, achieving your highest potential. That is winning. Whatever they were, you know, what the scoreboard says is like, okay, that's what the scoreboard says, but who cares? That, that's like a small game in the championship of life because this, it's a nested sequence of games. And even the championship is, is not the ultimate championship. It, Fred, there's, Fred. Yes. Yes, Fred. Yes. I'm doing that for you. Yes. Yes. Fred. So many things here, right? Number one, it's it's I was I ran and we just interviewed uh Dr. Henry Weisinger uh last week, Henry Weisinger last week, who had written Performing Under Pressure. And one of the things that he talked about, Fred was an excellence mindset versus a ranking mindset. And a ranking mindset, it's always, well, hey, how do I compare to my opponent? Whether if it's in an athletic game or how do we compare to the other company? How do we compare to our competitors? How do I compare to the guy who lives down the street? What's my house look like compared to his? What's my car look like compared to hers? And the pressure... We put pressure on ourselves with an excellence mindset. We can do it to ourselves. We can do it to our coworkers, our, our companies. We can do it to our own children. And instead, what as I'm listening to you here, it, what, what it's reiterated to me is the importance of 
an excellence mindset. And competition is good. It is good because it can help you get to your true 100%. But in that competition, whether it's an athletic contest in corporate America or just in life, are you doing your best? And just stay focused on doing your best and doing it every single day and everything that you do. And then the championship, the best year you've ever had as an organization, whatever it might be, that just becomes a byproduct of you're having that excellence mindset every single day. Number one. Number two, I, I wanted to make sure, Fred, because I feel like, you know, with your own background, and, and by the way, uh, for, the, for our listeners, I, there's so many things I wanted to talk to Fred about today and, and about conscious business because it's so applicable today. Uh, but if you don't know Fred's background growing up uh, under a military dictatorship in Argentina, please listen to our first conversation with Cap that we had with Fred that he goes into it. But Fred, I would want to reiterate something that you and I spoke of in that first conversation, which was when we say the term warrior, people, I think, automatically think military. And it couldn't be furthest from the truth because there's plenty of people who are in the military who are not warriors. And there's many more people who have never been in the military who may not ever wanted to be in the military. They have no interest in the military, but they are the definition of a warrior. In conscious business, you highlight in your words, a player versus victim mindset. And one of the quotes that starts that chapter off, though, is about a warrior's belief. And then in the in your the chapter about this, you call warrior player. As I read it, I think not player, I think warrior. Every time I see player, I think warrior. Fred, when you talk about a a warrior's mindset, or in your terms, in, in, in conscious business, a player's mindset compared to a victim's mindset. <laughs> Fred, how can we tell if we were if we are one or the other? Should, should we try to figure this out ourselves, or should we ask those closest to us to, to give us feedback? What are the things that we might say or do that should make us think if we are players, warriors, or, or victims? Why is it so important to be and have a player or warrior mindset? Well, um, these are archetypes. These are potentials for being. So every human being has both opportunities at every moment. So I don't think you can say I am a warrior all the time uh, or I am a victim all the time. I mean, some people are, but that's a choice. It doesn't matter what you've done all your life. The question is, are you going to be a warrior now? Like now, and now again, and now again, because you never earn your title. It's always, you're always under test. You're, every, everything that happens, every minute, it's a test. And it's a test of who are you going to choose to be when life presents you with this circumstance? whatever this circumstance is. So right now, the circumstances, you and I are having this conversation. Can we, we can whine about the world, 
or we can say, what are we going to do about it? What's, what's the choice? And this choice is never ended. It, it's like, okay, you're standing next to a cliff. It's like, oh shit, I gotta run. I gotta, I gotta jump. Uh, what well, could I jump? And I'm scared. And I'm scared. And then, okay, I, 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 well, I'm sure you you've jumped in parachutes. So you you just jump. And the moment you jump, I use like, oh, fine, okay, I did it. I mean, whatever comes now, I already did it. And you jump. It's like shit. I'm back on the plane. I'm in like instantly. Wait, wait a minute. I I had to gather all my energy. I took the run. I jumped. I I'm done. No, no, you're not done. You're back on the plane. And now it's another jump and another jump. And are you? It's, it's like, shit, when does this end? Never. It never ends. Every moment, there's a new challenge. And the question is, are you going to be a victim or are you going to attack, to use your motto? Because the difference is, when you're a player, you don't whine about what happens. You just acknowledge this is what's happening. And anything that's out of control for you is what's happening. So by definition, like 99.999% of your life happens because it's out of control. And you don't care. I mean, that is what it is. There's nothing you can do about it. But there's there's this this much that it's under your control. And instead of looking at all these mass of things that are out of control, you're going to look at the one chance you have to do something about it. Because you can always do something about it, where it is everything. So the victim will look at all this and say, oh, woe is me. Look at all these things that are out of control. It's happening to me. And that is true, but it's a choice of where to focus your attention. So I'm not saying this is not true, but why will you focus your attention on that? Only because you want to feel innocent and self-righteously entitled to blame someone else or God for the situation you find yourself in. And you know, you can, I mean, it's okay. You have that choice. If you want that, well, go ahead and do it. You'll live a miserable life. You'll be a whiny, poor little thing that's looking for excuses for failure. As opposed to take ownership. That doesn't mean you're to blame. That doesn't mean there's no injustice. But the question is, what are you going to do about it? This, this is a very different question. Why is this happening to me? I mean, we have a joke in, in Argentina. It's a little coarse, but you know, you're the guy in the football stadium that is screaming, it's like, 10,000 people in this stadium and this stupid pigeon had to shit on me. Why? Like, why? Why? Why did I get shot on? I was like, why? I mean, man, it didn't happen to you. It just happened. It's like saying, why is it raining on me? It's not raining on you. It's raining. And as a friend of mine says, there is no such thing as bad weather. There's only bad gear. You're not, you're not prepared. I mean, if you have good gear, there is no bad weather. And you can extend that to light. So being a player is this attitude, acknowledge what happens, and then ask yourself, what am I going to do in the face of this circumstance to pursue my mission in alignment with the highest possible values? That is success beyond success. Will you succeed? Nobody knows. In fact, you know the last battle you're going to lose. I mean, we all die. I mean, this is what the Buddha found out. You know, if everything goes really well, you get old, then you get sick, hopefully not very sick, and then you die. And that, that's as good as it gets. Yeah. So how can you be happy when you know that's going to happen? I, I don't want to die a loser. Would you want to die? A, because if you define winning like you're going to win the battle, you're going to die a loser. I don't want to die a loser. I want to die a warrior. And what's the difference? 
Well, then when you confront death, is what are you going to do when death is coming? And either when you're 120 or when you're 20, it's still going to come. And then that preparation every day to meditate, how do I confront the unpredictability that moment to moment creates anxiety, in a sense, creates a sense of exhilaration. Fritz Perls, uh, founder of Gestalt Psychology, said, well, anxiety is excitement, but without the breath. I mean, if you breathe into it, if you get used to it, then it's exhilarating. It's like a, like, like, a, like a game that's very dangerous inside, like chess. You know, you can get killed, mm -hmm. but it's very safe outside. And unless you have this space of safety, which is psychological safety, spiritual safety, the world is too freaking dangerous. I mean, you know, all sorts of bad things are going to happen and all sorts of bad things are happening. And it's so easy to get to wallow in self-pity and say, oh, look at this. And, look, and it's true. You, you actually are entitled to that. You, if you want that, it's yours. You can choose to live like that and you're, it's warranted. So, I mean, this is why it's so insidious because it's not false. When someone says, look, you know, like, I don't know, like I've been born the wrong religion in a place like it's anti-Semitic, like me. Uh, and I grew up in Argentina under a fairly anti-Semitic regime. Or you're born black in, in, in a place where people are racist. Or, or you're born a woman in a place where women are discounted. And it's true. And like, how can you argue against that? That's unjust. It's horrible. And then what? <laughs> because saying it's unjust, many times the people that are unjust don't give a damn that it's unjust. They, they, are, they actually want to produce damage because they are sick in their mind. And then yeah. what are you going to do about it? How do you fight? in a sense, like the, the warrior you're saying, for truth, for justice, for love, for honor. And I, you can't lose. I mean, I, this is the incredible gift that when you, when you stand for that, there's a sense of peace and resilience that has nothing to do with the scoreboard. Fred. Uh, as you're talking, it was reminding me, and a good friend of mine, of a best friend of my sister's, is a woman by the name of Siri Lindley. She's a, a world-class triathlete. And by, you know, we throw that term around world-class. No, I'm saying she's actually a world champion triathlete. And as you're speaking about death itself, it was reminding me about Siri before I, I even saw that Siri was listening this morning and watching us, but that she had uh, received uh, uh, news that she had cancer and she mm -hmm. talks about that, right? And this is a person who, I mean, I don't want to sound crass, Fred, but if you're going to smoke every single day of your life and then you find out you have cancer, it's still horrible, but you did smoke every single day of your life. This is not a woman who, who smoked any ever, right? And and finds out that she has cancers. And you know, the 1% of 1% physically finds out she has cancer. And one of the things that Siri talked about when we had our coffee with Cap conversation was, you know, her mindset, that warrior mindset that she has. Again, never part of the military, and I can't speak for her, but I don't know if she ever even thought about the military or whatever, but definitely was never in the military, but 100% represents a warrior that it was for her, okay, now what? Exactly. Now what? 
like, what am I going to do to move forward? And I, I think, you know, when we hear whether it's a great battle, right, or, or these cancer type diagnoses, that warrior mindset is, is very easy to see in people. But as you're talking about it, the, the truth is every single day we have choices that we're going to make. Nowhere near the, the implications of cancer or, or whatever, it, you, know, it, you know, major type of life events like that. But just every day we're, we have choices. Reminds me, Fred, last, last night, Friday, we do Friendly Friday. My, my son and nine-year-old son, Axel, and, and his buddies come over and we get a workout in. And yesterday it's 55 degrees and raining here in Northeastern Connecticut. And I cleaned out an area in our garage and I told the boys, hey, look, if you want to work out inside, you can work out inside or that's your choice. And look, I'm going to do 12 rounds today of Friendly Friday. We do three minute rounds, one minute of exercise, one minute of jump rope, one minute of rest. Right. I say, look, I'm doing 12 rounds today. You guys, you have to do four. And we don't actually, we, the, the exact terminology is you get to do, I'm sorry, not four, you get to do eight rounds today. After that, it's your choice as to how many more you do or not. And we got to number nine and I want to ask my son first. And I asked Axel, hey, look, you, you've done eight. You're, you're good. You don't have to do nine. Do, are, do you want to do, are you going to do nine? And immediately says, oh, I'm doing nine. I'm doing round nine. And as a parent, I don't care if he fails a test, if, if as long as he's giving his 100%. But that attitude and that choice, like I went to bed a happy man last night. And now he and his other friends, they did do 9, 10, 11, and 12 because that's a warrior's mindset right there. And afterwards, I talked to them about the fact that, look, somebody says, well, hey, you can do this, but hey, this is good enough. The way we make it easy on ourselves is to say, like Siri Lindley, no, I'm going to I'm going to live. Don't, don't talk to me about, well, only 10 percent of people live. Yeah, I'm going to be the 10 percent. Like I'm not a statistic in, in her words. Right. It as a warrior mindset is we don't even have a question of whether or not we're doing eight, only eight rounds, nine rounds, 10 rounds. No, we're I'm doing 12. Like I'm just going to make that choice and then. We move on. And again, we don't need the, we have so many opportunities every single day to prove yeah. that, that warrior mindset, right? So, yeah, uh, well, Fred, I, I mean, yeah. I, I want to tell you, I, I, I work as a executive coach now. I'm coaching a bunch of CEOs, a group of senior executives, even some people in the military. Um, and it's shocking. Every coaching session starts more or less the same. And I would say 90% of the time, after people work with me for a while, they change. But when I start working with someone, I say, okay, tell me something that you're dissatisfied with, that people are like, you're, you're not happy. I call it a gap between your ambition and your capacity. So let's just say um, you like, you're overwhelmed. You have a lot of work and you know, you're coming home late and your wife is getting angry at you and so on. So you would tell me, people tell me a story like that, like, you know, um, 
I don't want that. I want to change that. I want that to be different. So then I asked them, why is this happening? 100% of the time, before people are trained, they'll say, well, my boss overloads me. This just, or there's just too much work. And I call bullshit on that. I say, yes, you know, that's true, but that's half of the truth. Because your boss can ask you to do things, but what do you respond? And people are shocked. It's like, what do you mean? I, are you going to blame me? It's like, this is not blame. I'm telling you, there is no such thing as the sound of one hand clapping. I mean, you don't get a clap with one hand. So you need two hands to clap. And this is your boss doing this. But there's there's you. You're doing something. And, you know, when people think about it, like, well, uh, I, no, I'm not doing anything. Well, that's something. Your boss is asking you, can you do this? And you're putting your head down and doing it. What if you said no? Oh, I can't say no. What do you mean you can? You can. You don't want to. No, I can't. Well, maybe you don't like the consequences, but you can, You certainly can. And I'm not even saying that would be a good idea. But if you don't even acknowledge your power to respond to what happens, you are a victim. I mean, yeah. you are defining yourself as a victim of circles. So it is, I mean, we're talking about monumental challenges of life, but even the small things like, you know, can you come to this meeting? I said, like, oh shit, I gotta go to the meeting. I gotta go to the meeting. That's victim. You don't gotta go do anything. Everything you do in your life is a choice. And precisely when you start living like a warrior, everything is your choice. And, you know, as you said, this much better, I have a slightly different philosophy. So I want to propose that to compare with yours. I, I don't, I want to set goals for me that I don't know if I can achieve. For, because for me, the crucial four inches are the four inches at the, at, at the limit of my capacity, where there's a 50% chance that I will fail. Because I want to go from two inches below my capacity to two inches above what used to be what I believed was my capacity. But I'm going to push myself to failure. So when I was climbing Aconcagua, the mountain, my real goal, not, not the goal, my real goal was to faint. I wanted to faint. I said, I'm going to walk until I faint. If I don't faint, I'll get to the top. But I don't know if I'll get to the top, but I can guarantee I can faint. I mean, that, that's up to me. It doesn't depend on anybody. So can I do 12 of your rounds? I don't know. I don't know if I'm trained enough to do 12 of your rounds, but I can tell you I, I'm going to puke. I mean, I, I'll keep going until, or, you know, my muscle fail. I'll go to the gym and I'll push and I'll do an exercise and I'll hold until, you know, I'm, I'm shaking and I just can't, cannot do one more rep. Maybe that will happen in the third. Maybe it will be in the 12. But the moment of failure, that's the four inches that make the difference from where you thought was your maximum yesterday to just maybe it's half an inch. I mean, that little, or maybe just got there and it's like, yep, yeah, okay, it's still my failure. Uh, but I gave everything I got. And you, there's no external standard, but you know if you gave everything you got. And that's what being a warrior is. You give everything you, you got. And then the external, whether you win or lose, whether you live or die, whether your boss fires you or not, I mean, that's up to your boss. So if your boss is, is, is a tyrant, and the moment you say, hey, boss, you know, I, I mean, we agree that we work eight hours a day. I need to take care of my family. So, well, then maybe I don't need you. Like, okay, I guess you don't need me because I don't need a job like this. And then you start living strategically. How do I make sure no tyrants can lock me up? Because 
you know, if I was locked up today, I say, shit, you know, I have to put my head down because feeding my family is more important than, you know, asserting my independence today. But what am I going to do? So that's not the case next week because this asshole is not going to hold me hostage forever. Maybe I need to be a hostage for a day, for a week, for a year. But if next year I'm still hostage, shame on me. Not shame on him. Shame on me. I'm not living strategically. I'm not pushing myself. I need a gig. I need something to do at night. I need to study something. But if I'm going to live under a tyrant and I'm not doing anything, I am a slave. And that's not being a player. So it's it's not just a monumental thing. It's like when you go to the gym, when you go running, are you willing to put yourself in a position of willful stress where you want to be stressed, but it's the healthy stress. It's called hormesis. Hormesis is, is, is stressing your body so it grows. It's like you know stressing your muscles so they you break them down and then they grow healthier. Or fasting so your body eats the 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 the, the cells that are not healthy or whatever. You know, just stressing yourself, but in a constructive manner, in a manner that's going to lead to a better life in the future. And then, in a sense, there's no fear because this is totally under your control. I was worried. It's like, will I get to the top? And, you know, I got to the top in Aconcagua. There was another mountain I was climbing in Bolivia. I felt so bad that I literally kind of fainted. I was I was stumbling. It was a dangerous mountain. I mean, I, it was a cornice and that's not a place where you want to stumble through. So I came back and I feel as proud of that coming back and having the intelligence and the wisdom and listening to the guy that said, we can't do this. And, and I came back and it, 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 okay, did I make it? No, it's, it's the head of Condor, Condorini is the name of mountain in Bolivia, which I, I, I remember as proudly as Aconcagua. Why? It was a wise decision. I didn't make it. So in a sense, you are guaranteed this, this success beyond success, even if you can't succeed today, but just challenging yourself, daring yourself to make these four inches, the four inches between success and failure, having only a 50% chance. Like I, I, I learning to live on the edge of your competence and say, I want to get this much better because four inches within your comfort zone are not worth very much. Of course you can do it. And there are people yeah. that will set low standards for themselves. So they are sure that they succeed. And it's like, okay, I mean, that's a, that's a choice, but life will always give you a choice of stretching you beyond your old boundaries. And it's like, are you going to go kicking and screaming? Like, you know, Moses telling God, why are you choosing me? I'm a stutter. I don't want to go. I mean, he was a victim first. Or, you know, in, in the Bible, the first story of humankind. It's like, God telling Adam, what have you done? I mean, you know you're naked. What have you done? He said, I, I didn't do anything. You ate the fruit that I forbade you to eat. No, it wasn't me. She gave it to me. And then God turns to the woman and says, what have you done? He said, oh, no, it was the snake. It was the serpent. It wasn't me. I mean, this is the first story of victimhood. Instead of owning up and saying, yep, I did it. I mean, <laughs> I did. Well, she gave it to me, but I chose to eat it. No, 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 no. It's her fault. And then it's the serpent's fault. And the serpent said, well, you put me on the ground. It, actually, it's your fault. I mean, Adam tells God, it's your fault because this woman you put next to me. That Those are the literal words. So it's your fault for putting the woman next to me that gave me the fruit that then I ate. So I'm clean. I didn't do anything. I'm saying that is a philosophy of failure, of failure in life. The philosophy of success is like, yeah, I ate it. I mean, I, I screwed up. <laughs> like I, I did it. I shouldn't have done it. I regret having done it. 
but uh, yeah, I did it. I, I, what am I going to do next? I'm not going to do it again. And we've been blaming our wives ever since. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like, Red. you know, the, 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 the devil made me do it. Uh, it wasn't me. It's like, oh, no, no, no. That's, that's a loser's mindset. Fred, the couple things you, you, you talked about, uh, Aconcagua and the discomfort that you felt climbing it. And the line in the book that I used just this past week with one of our corporate clients was discomfort on a mountain. I know a little bit about, you know, climbing. I've been on Aconcagua. I've, I've summited Aconcagua myself. It's just amazing, right? I mean, on, on, Unbelievable. Uh, but in you talk about, and it really spoke to me as a mountain climber, you said discomfort on a mountain means you're getting higher. In life, it means you're growing. And I, I love I, I love that analogy. Uh, Fred, you mentioned commitments. Well, you know, first, actually, Fred, I'd like to talk because you had mentioned responsibility and unconditional responsibility. And there was something there, when I talk about this book changed my life, what uh, one of the many ways it has was, it changed my, my mindset on accepting responsibility. And as you highlighted, you're, you're not to blame for your circumstances that you're faced with, with whatever it is. Siri's not to blame for cancer. You're not to blame for the boss that you that you have, or, or you're not to blame for the injustice uh, that is done against you. You're not to blame for that, but, or I should say, and still take 100 responsibility, 100% responsibility for your choices in those situations. Exactly. You went on to say something very interesting because maybe not in all cases, but in many cases, it the injustice or the situation you find yourself in, there's, there's somebody else who's part of this mm -hmm. reason that we're in this. And as you highlighted, still, Take 100% responsibility for it. Now, and this is the key point that it really, <laughs> I was like, you know, I was, uh, in fact, more more, more importantly, this, I, I felt more like, you, you know, as, as, as you were, uh, you know, as, as, as I read it was, you know, yes, was, but just because you take 100% responsibility doesn't mean the other person can't take 100% responsibility too. And I thought, oh, that's so true. But again, I don't, I don't control that other person taking 100% responsibility. But if you are in this type of relationship, and I talked, and this is, you know, the, my most important relationship is the one that I have with my wife is, and I think most of us would say that, whether it's our husband, mm -hmm. our wife, or our, our significant others, our partners, probably the most re important relationships most of us have in our lives is, hey, look, I'm going to take 100% responsibility, but it doesn't mean you can't do the same. And if we can both do that, then we have a chance of succeeding beyond success. 
Totally, totally. Well, there's a, a, a small trick that I use uh, by changing language to encourage this sense of non-exclusivity that they, you can have 200% or, or 10,000% if you are talking about the team. I mean, it could be a football team where everybody takes 100% responsibility. And as you say, I make a little pause. Responsibility, which is the ability to respond. We all have the ability to respond. So it's future looking as opposed to backward looking. Like who did this? Who's responsible for this would be like, how did this come about? But you know, that's not the main question. The main question is what are we gonna do about it? How do we respond to this in the face of this, not for this? So the 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 to be responsible for most people will associate with blame. Like who did it? Who's responsible for this? I mean, you find a mess in your in your house, like okay, who broke the picture and uh, who dropped it or whatever? Who's responsible for this? Oh, I didn't do it. As opposed to, okay, now this is a mess. What am I going to do? And, and it's just about you. Are you going to yell at people? Are you going to clean it up? Are you going to close the door, pretend you didn't see it? I mean, and, and you're always, I mean, by definition, you're, you're human, so you're able to respond. And that doesn't take away from what other people did, the injustice. So, so it's not exclusive. You can acknowledge the miserable state of the world. I mean, just to be uh, in the spirit of the times, like I, I, I promise you, I have nothing to do with COVID. Like I, I didn't do anything about it. Like I, it's not my fault. I guarantee I'm not involved in anything. I mean, just you didn't I, yeah. that. no, it's not my bad. Yeah. But, but it's the it's the world in which we live. So I feel responsible. I have to do something about it. I speak about it. I either wear a mask or not. I either share some videos about information of it, or I share other videos or I live with fear, or I encourage other people to protect themselves or, or be afraid. I mean, whatever you do, I mean, and, and I'm not taking a position. I don't want to argue about what's the right response. My point is that I have to respond to it. I cannot not respond to it. It's a lie to pretend, oh, I didn't do it. So this has nothing to do with me. Of course it has to do with anything that happens in my life has to do with me. If it matters, it's my issue. And what am I going to do about it? So this this takes away this notion of blame or who's the owner of this, who did it? Well, everybody who wants to care, like, do you care? Then it's yours. Anything you care, it's yours. So what are you going to do about it? it it's, a, it's a it's not a momentous question. It's just very simple. You know, you can be at work, and uh, a client calls and, and and says, you know, I I had this expectation and you guys didn't deliver. I can say, well, this is not my fault. Why are you yelling at me? Or you can say, okay, let's see what we can do about that first. I'm, I'm really sorry. And you take ownership for your company and say, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, I take, like, talk, talk to me. What happened? And, you know, you, you can do both. And the truth would be, like, why are you yelling at me? I didn't do it. It's true. You didn't do it. But is that the way you want to express your values? Well, I don't want anybody to yell at me. It's like, okay, well, then your life will be the life of someone that is not willing to take that kind of responsibility but the more you take the more in a sense the more life you have the bigger you are because you you can't avoid receiving or being exposed to more when you grow in, in again i mean I, i'm not a buddhist i, I just like the, the philosophy of buddhism but in buddhism you you grow as a space of care and compassion so you'd say as, as a human being matures you become wider 
in your circles of care and compassion. This is very similar to what Stephen Covey says. But the more you care, the more it hurts. Like, if I don't give a shit about anybody, I mean, let's just say, except my family, well, as long as my family is fine, I'm having a good time. Now, if I care about my community, there's a lot more people that can potentially hurt me because I'm connected to them. If I care about my country, then a lot more things. It's like, Jesus, I mean, this is a huge mess because so many things are, many more things are of control. If I care about humanity, well, I mean, it's it's horrible. There's, there's so much pain and hunger and anguish and devastation and horrible things. They're beautiful things too, but I care. I, I see that as my personal problem. Why? Because I take it, because I want it. I buy the program, I buy the problem. And, and you say, what, what would you do that? I don't know, because yeah. I want the life that comes with it. This, that's a sacrifice. Fred, you, you, uh, you, you talk about COVID and you don't want to, you said, as, you know, I don't know, a mask, no mask, whatever. One, one of the things I, I, I will say, say this is I, I've been completely, and I, I, I can, I don't know if you want to talk about it or not, but, you know, most of us, we can only read about fascism by reading about, you know, the Nazis in World War II and, and the persecution of the Jews, above people of different uh, races, the LGBTQ community uh, back for, in World War II. Yes. You've actually lived it in a fascist regime in Argentina. And, but for me, my personal perspective is if you say, hey, if you want to work, you can go to work. But if you choose not to, for whatever your risk reward trade-off is, as it pertains to any number of things, but in this environment, COVID. Okay, I understand it. That's freedom. But to say you, you can't work. That's fascism. Yes. And it's been, it, it's, it's so disappointing for me that I feel so many, I can't speak, you know, you, you live around the world, Fred. I, I live here in the United States, but how dis, I, so I can't talk about other countries, but how disappointing it has been for me because so many Americans, now there's been many who don't, but how so many Americans have just said, okay, let's not work. You tell me the, these, these, People in, whether it's our medical leaders, it's the political leaders who say, yep, don't work. You can't work. And we just say, okay, that's well, fine. Well, it's even worse. While our, neighbors, while, while our neighbors are, I mean, for, for, the, for, for wealthy people, the truth is, okay, it's going to be fine. I mean, it is. Yeah, but most people aren't in the 1% and... The, the the gaps that are growing between rich and poor by telling people you can't work, those are growing. By telling people you can't go to school, well, the education gap is growing. And it'll be generational impact. And yet so many Americans are saying, okay, fine, I'll just listen to the quote-unquote experts. Yeah, you got 9 million people killed. You got 9 million Jews killed in World War II. And we're willing to say, yep. You grew up in a fascist regime. Fred, do you want to talk about it in your yeah. response right now? Do you see similarities? 
And am I, as my wife says, hey, come on, Eric, calm down. Like, I, you, I, people bring up COVID, no. and she's like, oh, boy, here we go with Eric. No, no, like, don't calm down. What are your thoughts, Fred? Well, first, don't calm down. Please, don't, do not calm down. This is, this is worthy of all the excitement. I mean, I, I, am, I am seriously worried. It was a great American. I don't know exactly. I want to say Benjamin Franklin, but I'm not sure, uh, who said, those who are willing to trade safety for liberty will get neither safety nor liberty. And in that time, it was about violence. But here, we're talking about sanitary safety, but it's the same fear. And it's not just the Americans, it's everywhere. People are being bribed to be sheep. This idea of universal basic income is like, okay, let the state take care of you. The state cannot give anything that doesn't take first. I mean, printing money is not printing wealth. I mean, I'm an economist. So people are being bribed by confetti paper to say, hey, you know, we're going to give you a couple thousand dollars. And now everybody's talking about the stimulus and the stimulus is going to save everybody. It's, it's not about going to work or being free to be productive or living your life. Look, if you don't want to take risks, don't. But why would you impose on me that I cannot take risks? Why are you going to take my grandma that is almost 100 and she can't see me? Like, you know, my mom is in, in Argentina. The, the freaking airport is shut down. I mean, I can't help. She, she, they haven't left their home in six months. It's forbidden. It, it literally is forbidden. The police will, will take them and, 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 and bring them back, if not take them to jail. Now, you explain that to me. You know, you put it, you're going to put an 84-year-old in jail because she left the house when it's forbidden because that's safer than... I mean, it's just crazy. So the U.S. is not nearly as bad as South America. I mean, what, what's happening in some of these countries is horrific. But it's all part of the same. Since when the state is in charge of keeping you safe, I mean, that, that is fascism. We're doing it, but it's a fascism that starts inside your head. We're doing it for your own good. And people say, yes, yes, please keep us safe. Keep us safe. We, we're willing to, to be sheep and to give up our liberty for security. Uh, and, and then, you know, oh, there's, there's someone in the street without a mask. And it's like, well, if, I mean, don't go to the street or, or stay away or do something. But there's a sense of, your integrity as a human being, what are you going to do in your own home? You can't worship in your home. I mean, like, I mean, you, you, you can go and, and buy pot, but you can't go to a synagogue in LA. I mean, I, I mean again, I'm, I'm not against people smoking pot if they want to, but just why, why would you have this, this sense of non-essential businesses? Who the hell? I mean, my business is essential for me. It may not be essential for you, are you going to shut me down because you say it's non-essential? So absolutely. Fred, that, that point right there too about essential. I hate that. And I know hate's a strong word. I no. hate that term. Like, look, I'm not, this isn't me being unhappy with, like the nurses and doctors never said, hey, call us essential. So this isn't against doctors, but the mindset of, okay, if you're a nurse, a doctor, a first responder, well, you're essential. And the rest of us then, by definition, aren't essential. That's like saying to a military guy, yeah, the infantry, the infantry is essential, but everybody else isn't. Okay, until the infantry runs out of bullets, 
then we need somebody to bring us more bullets. I mean, and, and by the way, not only bullets, yeah, we need somebody to give us food, give yeah. us toilet paper. Give yeah. Everybody is essential. And, but we have a mindset and we've been told and, and it's been driven home to us of, no, 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 only some people are essential. That is ridiculous. Teachers are essential. It, you, you, me, we all are essential for our, our communities, for our lives. It all works together. Exactly. To say no, okay, fine, I'm all right. No, but that that word is uh, the proverbial nose of the camel under the tent, because when you say, "Oh, non-essential medical procedures," you know what non-essential? I mean, like a cancer screening is a non-essential. Well, I tell you, if that's non-essential, I don't. I mean, what the hell is that? I mean, we, the number of deaths that are related to the lockdown. Now, this, the WHO is now saying, oh, you know, lockdowns are bad. The, the, the World Health Organization, that where for, for six months, everybody has been locked down. And they're saying, no, this is a bad policy. And Sweden, that didn't follow it. I mean, I don't want to get started because that's a whole other hour. But, but really, the number of deaths of people who did not undergo non-essential procedures vastly exceeds the number of deaths by COVID. I mean, vastly, the, the people that are going to starve to death. So, of course, uh, I mean, I love what Stefan said. We are essential. We are essential. So when someone else from the outside says, I am going to take the power to decide what's essential and what is not, they're saying, I'm going to control your life. That, that is the, that's the problem. It's not what is essential. We don't, we don't have to agree. I mean, that's the whole point about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, just do your thing. I, I, it's not up to me to decide how you pursue your happiness and say, oh no, that's not a way to pursue your happiness. That is fascism. I'm gonna tell you, or socialism or tyranny or totalitarianism. I'm going to tell you how to live and you belong to me. You're not the master or the owner of your own life. Your life belongs to the community. That collectivist totalitarian tyranny is what's underneath this whole excuse. So, yes, is this a bad situation? Of course, I mean, it's a pandemic. I mean, I mean, and, and people are dying. So, I mean, of course, this is, this is terrible. But the question is, what are we gonna do about this? And it's very sad how many people have surrendered their power and their warrior spirit to say, oh, we need someone to take care of me. And that is the beginning of totalitarianism. It's as, as fascist as anything I've ever seen. It's happening all over the world. Very few people are raising their voice against it. I feel my responsibility is to raise my voice against it and say, no, this is wrong. And you can do it because they have, I mean, whoever they are, the people imposing this, have enough power to threaten and coerce to make it so. But yeah. here's the ultimate liberty. The ultimate liberty is not with my consent not with my this is my mantra this is happening it's true i'm in mexico now and for months like people were actually patrolling the beach there's no one in the beach i'm next to the beach i couldn't go to the beach and you know when i saw the the police uh, jeeps going on the beach i stay away because i don't want to be in trouble with the police but when i couldn't go to the beach i said not with my consent and when they were not there i did go so yeah i broke the rule I'm sorry you know take me to jail i broke the rule you know you know what the closest living being was to me? The whales. 
There was no one. I mean, I couldn't see a human being. Literally, I could see the whales like a mile away. I mean, Los Cabos. A, a mile away, I could see the, 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 the jet of the whale. It's like, why am I going to infect the whales? I mean, this is like crazy. And, and I remember having a discussion with people say, oh, no, no, but it's the rule. Like, are you out of your mind? I mean, it's the rule. It's the excuse for mass murder. That That's is when right. you surrender right. your, your responsibility. When you say, oh, well, you know, the boss told me to, or the police told me to, or the nurse told me to, I'm sorry, I'm going to inject you with this substance because somebody said I had to. He's like, what? No, no, no. So I, 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 I'm not suggesting you put yourself in harm's way. But if you disagree with a rule that in, infringes in your life, liberty, I mean, I love the United States. I love the idea of the United States as the founding fathers. It's like my, my ultimate ethical statement about how a society needs to be constructed. And it's like, not with my consent. You can do this to me. I'm human and I'm limited, but you cannot get my consent. There's no way. No force in the world can make me consent to something that I believe is wrong. Fred, on that um, is, yeah, by the way, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so wrapped up, by the way. I, I got to make sure, Fred. Yes, Fred. Yes. Yeah, Fred, come on. You got to get into it here, Fred. Well, yes. for the ideas. It's not yes, me. It's the ideas. Right. I, I'm, just, I'm just expressing ideas that enrapture me. This is not me. I mean, I'm just uh, sharing what I've learned. Fred, on that, in, in, I want to say one last thing on it, and then I want to move on to a a, a similar piece. But uh, number one, you talked about being on the beach, and my as I hear that story, and you say, "Hey, the nearest pe- the nearest thing to me is a whale breaching a mile off the beach." And my point is, is say there's another person out on the beach, and they're within six feet of you. You're both making that choice, though. Of course, you have the right to make that choice, and not having the right to make that choice, that's fascism. Fred, on that, let's talk about truth because in conscious business, you you talk about truth. And, and as I started the conversation off with is as leaders, as human beings, to live a conscious life, we must, we must seek the truth. But to do so, we have to understand and come to have a maturity level that what your truth is, is a belief that it's your truth. And that your truth, there takes a mature, a, a, a certain level of maturity to understand that your truth does not mean the truth. And we must always be seeking the truth. How do we do so, Fred? Well, because I think I'm always right, Fred. Uh, that's funny. I think the same. <laughs> so uh, we, we have to distinguish what we call a fact from which is objective and we have some standards of evidence to agree on a fact and a belief or a feeling which is subjective so i can believe you have a right to your beliefs you have a right to your feelings because they are yours but it's a categorical mistake to say these are my facts they're not yours the facts are facts you can state them you can discover them, you can present them, but they're not yours in the way that feelings are yours. So I find that there's a, I would say, a common reality which cannot be denied without some severe consequences. 
And that is a, a truth that we live by. And, and, and you know, there's some rock bottom truths that are not, that cannot be under discussion without severe mental illness, like just, just like that. Um, but then the majority of conflicts that people have are about partial truths. Even if they are facts, they're not all the facts. Uh, they're uh, a certain subset of the facts that give rise to a certain conclusion or a belief and a set of feelings that can associate it with that. So the, the peace, the peaceful conversation between you and I would be, okay, I know you believe you're right, but tell me why, what, what, what evidence do you have? And this is something akin to the scientific method. I'm not challenging you because you're going to tell me some true things. And then I'll say, yeah, you know, that, that's true, that's true. But the truth with capital T is so much bigger than what you can comprehend or you can encompass or you can list as a sequence of facts that you cannot know the whole truth. It's too big. So there are a lot of things, like for example, part of the truth is how I feel about what you're saying. You don't know how I feel, but my feeling, yes, it's a feeling, but as such, it's a fact. So I can feel angry. And, and you say, no, you're not angry. It's like, what, what do you mean? I'm not, I, I am angry. I mean, that, that's a fact. No, that's just your feeling. Yeah, it's my feeling, but the statement, I am angry, is a fact. So you see, it's, it's, a, it's a representation or a proposition that states how I feel. So nobody knows the whole truth. And this is what I call humility. There's an attitude of humility where I feel very grounded in stating what I believe are facts. I'm open that I could be wrong. Like I, I can, you know, I can, I can evaluate things mistakenly, but I'll state them. But I'll state them with a sense of openness to being completed. Like you can add some facts. Like I think, yeah, you know, this customer never called us again. I mean, the guy told me he was gonna do business with us, and then he didn't. And then you say, uh, uh, sorry, he called me. I mean, I talked to him. I forgot to tell you, and I'm like, oh shit, okay. Now I, I have to revisit. So it's true. I should have said, I didn't know, or I believe he hasn't called because he didn't call me. And then you complete. And now we have a conversation that is peaceful because we say, okay, what happened? What are the beliefs? How do you feel about it? And then we can put more and more things on the table and have a sense of togetherness. So the sense of the truth is a, a common platform on which we're going to operate. And the, the platform has some, um, I would say, real components, like material objects, and some emotional components, some spiritual components, some aspirations, some goals, some desires that we have. And we can put all that in the space of our interaction so we can act together effectively and with dignity. I, I think that's the way to live. That, that, that's the sense of, how people get together, they work together, they play together in a, in a sports team, in an organization, in the military, in a family. There's an unconditional respect for your beliefs, for your feelings, for the statements you make about reality as far as you know them. And at the same time, there's a, a, a desire to complete that notion of truth with the input of everybody involved so we can act in harmony. Yeah, uh, that's the only way to live. You, you you call it in conscious business ontological humility. Exactly. And Fred, that, that you know, as I as I wrote in our book, myself and Jake McDonald, my co-author, 
uh, our, we were, we were, I shouldn't say my co-author, but as co-authors of the program, our book, but as I wrote in it, I learned in the Marine Corps, a buddy of mine, his battalion commander used to say, a man is a sum, and by that universal term, man, a person, but this was an infantry unit, and at the time it's all male, is a man is a sum of his experiences. And all of those experiences, as you're discussing, lead to what we believe to be true. Yeah. Growing up, um, here in in America, you growing up in Argentina, and that doesn't even take into our account our different religions, our parent who our parents are, the colors of our skin, rich, poor, all of these things. We, if just at that level, I grew up in America, you grew up in Argentina, then we have different experiences that are going to shape us to have certain beliefs, certain truths. And what you're saying is that ontological humility to, I believe this to be true, you believe X to be, Y to be true. First of all, it, it reminds me of, uh, you know, the story of if, if I draw a six in the sand and I stand on one side of the six and you stand on the other, it's a six to me, it's a nine to, nine to you. Just because I'm right doesn't mean that you're wrong. Exactly. And, you know, you, you hear people say, well, hey, don't, don't talk about religion and politics unless you're really smart about both. And, and first of all, the first thing I think is, well, how am I supposed to get smart if I don't talk about it? Number one. Number two, say you're a Democrat and I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat and you're a Republican or you feel this way and I feel that way. Fred, why can't we? Why is it so difficult for people to, to just have a conversation, though, and have that humility? Why does it turn into, as we saw, I don't know if you saw it or not, Fred, but I mean, in our, our debates that we have on, mm. on, on TV, but I, like we're pointing fingers at our presidential candidates, right? No, in our own lives, in my wife and I. At reading your book, I mean, she and I have talked about it at length. We have to, I have to get better. She'll say, I'm saying we do because she, she said that she agreed to it. But we have to get better. I have to get better on being able to realize that my truth is my truth and her truth is her truth. And she may not be wrong about it, but God, can't, why can't we have a discussion to just understand we need to get to a better understanding of each other, not prove who's right and who's wrong? Why is it so important? To prove who's right is that just a lack of maturity is it as you highlight in the book growing up is not a function of time which i love but it, it, or maturity is not a function of time yeah. is that all it is i mean why do we have to prove ourselves right yeah it's a very profound question yeah it's a very profound question because it goes to the core of who do you think you are. I make a distinction in the book between a know-it-all or a knower and a learner, just like a victim and a player. A learner is a person that defines him or herself as I'm open and I, I am an evolving process. So what makes me who I am is my capacity to grow. That's how I see myself. 
But a knower is a person that says, I am either right or wrong. And right is better than wrong. So if someone does not agree with me, they're a threat to myself because they, they could prove me wrong. So my goal is to prove that I'm right and he's wrong or she's wrong. And now there's opposition as opposed to how can we learn together? But, you know, scientists don't care so much about being right or wrong or, you know, true scientists. It's, it's like, this is the statement of what I believe today. And I'm going to run the experiment. And if the experiment doesn't go the way I expect, it's like, okay, the model is wrong. I mean, there's, it's just like, okay, I learned something. So now I changed my mind. And notice how people get accused. Oh, you flip-flop. I mean, where's your conviction? It's like, what conviction? My conviction is about the nature of reality. It's like, <laughs> reality can't be wrong. So if I have a belief and my expectation does not get fulfilled by an experiment, well, empirically, my model gave me the wrong answer. So I need to change the model. I can't change reality. That's what happened. I mean, I can do the experiment again. Maybe I made a mistake in the experiment. But the, the incongruence, it's an invitation to adjust my model of the world. And when you define yourself as a learner, there, there's no need to fight. If you say, Fred, you're wrong. I'd say, really? Okay, tell me. So I don't get mad. I get curious. And the other people get mad and then try to get even. So if you prove me wrong, I'm going to undermine you some other way because I think I am my idea. I'm not the process that generates my ideas. So it's a really an ontological change. So can you say that well, again? I am my idea. And if you attack my idea, you're attacking me. As opposed to I am a process that generates ideas. So if you attack an idea, it's like, Tell me, I mean, because it may be wrong, so I'll, I'll change it. And there, there's nothing, it's like, look, I mean, let's just say I love this shirt. You gave it to me, you know, the shirt I of the it. program. I said, Fred, you know, uh, you, you just, you, you drip some coffee over your shirt. It doesn't look good. Let's say before the, I said, oh, damn, you know, I wanted to use this one, but I'll change it. And I'd be grateful. It's like, thank you for, because I was going to look foolish or messy in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the video with a shirt that is tainted or there has a, a spot of coffee, it's just my shirt. I mean, it's not a big deal. Now, if I'm a three-year-old and this shirt is like my shirt, it's like, no, I want the shirt. I don't care. I mean, this is what I say when you're three, that's cute. I mean, you have this kind of temper tantrum. I don't know if your, your children had that face when they want this shirt. They want to go to school with this shirt, no matter how dirty, smelly, messy it is. No, this is my shirt. It's my, my blankie or my shirt. I say, when you're three, that's cute. When you're 43, that's not. I mean, that's dangerous. But as you said, you know, some people just have 40 years of experience at being three. They just, they just, they stay stuck at three and they just gain experience. And now they're, 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 they're 43-year-old, three-year-olds. And it's like, sorry, but you never grew up. So your ideas are like this shirt. Like you're wearing it because it looks good for now, but it's going to get old. It can get messed up. It can be proved wrong. And how many people have the honesty, the integrity to say, um, like, you know, I, I made a mistake or I believe that and now, yeah, I, I, I'm proved wrong. How many scientists, now that we're talking about COVID, had said, you know, those models we had that said 2 million and, and, and 200,000 dead, that Neil Ferguson model of the Imperial College was utter bullshit. I mean, terrible everywhere in the world. I mean, 
the guy quit in shame. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much corruption is behind that. And yet, that was the basis of world policy. How many people have said, you know, that was wrong? No, no, no. It's, I mean, they would say, yeah, that was wrong. Obviously, that was wrong. It, it's like it predicted like one, like 25 times the number of fatalities that happened. Like it was, it was like a scaremongering yeah. tactic for fascism. No doubt about it. Everybody, but how many people have said, yeah, you know, how many people have tweeted, you know, it's 215 days for the 15 days to flatten the freaking curve. You know, we're, we're, we are at today's an anniversary. Today's 215 days since someone said in 15 days we'll flatten the curve. And we're still in lockdown. It's like, how many people are remembering? Remember when it was about people dying unnecessarily? Now it's about cases. You look at CNN. I mean, this is... But but there's something much more sinister than just being knowers. It appeals to the sense of I'm right, but what's behind that? It's a it's a virus of the mind that is trying uh, like a mind a, a pathogen that is going to destroy our precious civilization, which is a sense of irreality. I can make up my facts. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to listen to the evidence. If I have enough power. I can do whatever I want, and I can define my reality. It's 1984, and um, a brave new world mixed up in the worst possible way. So I don't know. Some people have to st step up and say, no, not with my consent. This is I don't agree with this. And we ought to live with humility, but saying this is the case. Fred, you, uh, I, I love, by the way, I'm going to steal it from you like I do so many things, Fred. Uh, the three-year-old and 43. Well, you have 40 years of experience of being a three-year-old. I love that. It's And it's it's so true. Now, Fred, you, you highlighted, and I was very appreciative of your compliment at the start of our conversation, talking about me living a conscious life and in everywhere. And, you know, Fred, the thing that I, I point out, and in your book, you you, you talk about the real regrets you have is when you don't act according to your values. Yeah. And it speaks to me, Fred, because um, the most important people in this world to me are, are my family. And I'm going to start with my wife. And my greatest regrets are when I did not act in accordance to my values. You talked about universal integrity. When I wasn't a man of integrity to her. And it's my greatest regret. So I appreciate, I want to highlight that, Fred, because I appreciate you say that about me now. And, and Fred, I, I've tried to mature. I try not to be... 40 years of acting like a three-year-old because that was me yeah. and not in all sections of my life no no but in that section it was and that's my most important section to me and I, there's a thousand excuses i could give to you about it or it doesn't matter i was wrong now with that said my wife and you and you discuss it in the book you talk about the power of forgiveness in an effort to, to, to get to a better place. And 
the other with that though for whether it's a husband and a, a, a partner uh you know your significant other your partner or your your with your children or in business the people who who work with you we have a really difficult time doing that don't we we say to people well hey look last year you did this or even last month you did this and when i was reading your book something that really struck me and i talked to my wife about it for our, the for our own relationship was Boy, I hope I'm growing as a human being. I think I'm a better person now than I, I, I know I'm a better person than I was then. That's an easy one. But man, I hope I'm a better person today than I was even last month. And Cat Williams, a very famous uh, com comedian, and I, I think he's the greatest. I love him. He once talked about the fact that he goes back to his old neighborhood and people will say, oh, Cat, you've changed, you've changed, you've changed. And Cat Williams says, yeah, my response is, yeah, you're, you're darn right I've changed. God, and I hope 10 years from now, you tell me I've changed even more. Like, yeah, it's our job to change. And reading about you saying, hey, look, you've got to forgive people for, for the past because you're not going to be able to move forward. It's not just in the big things. It's in the little things. Hey, you know, you upset me last month. You upset me three months ago. And so now you project that forward when in fact, it's like, well, look, people are trying to grow. If you believe that, you've got to forgive them. What's the power of forgiveness? Well, first, forgiveness has uh, a first stage, which is a blessing you give to yourself. It's not for the other. It's to liberate yourself mm. from holding on to something that's painful and destructive to you. I mean, let alone, I mean, sometimes the other person may be dead and you're, you're holding on to anger, rage, hatred, and it's definitely not affecting the other person. I mean, you may think, I mean, this is an illusion, say, well, he doesn't deserve my forgiveness. Like, no, no, first you deserve your forgiveness because at least close it. It's just like close close the, the wound because it's not going to heal. So I think of forgiveness not so much as a blessing to the other, but as a blessing to yourself, a permission to grow and let, let the past heal inside. That doesn't mean you accept that what the other person did or you, you deny that it was wrong. Or, I mean, no way. I mean, of course, there are things that are despicable and in a sense, unforgivable from the point of view of telling the other person, okay, that may seem unforgivable, but inside your soul, when if you hold on to this rage, it, it's going to eat you up. It's like a black hole that sucks your energy. And, and I'm saying this in the most enlightenedly selfish way. No, this is not for the other, it's just for you. To say, how do I move forward? How do I close this wound so we can heal? And that's psychologically healthy for you. So for me, it's the first, and the most important stage of forgiveness. Mm. Then there's the blessing to the other. Do you even want to relate to this person? Do you want to tell them you forgive them? And I mean, my, my, I'm less, uh, like less uh, sure about what's the best way to do it. I tend to think if someone apologizes and is genuinely repentant, I, I, I like to open my heart and give them a chance because that's a blessing. But there are people who are unrepentant 
and I don't want to give them the explicit blessing. Like I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to have anything to do with them. Uh, I hope they have a good life. Like I don't wish, the, I don't wish them ill uh, uh, or 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 evil, but I wish them to stay away from me. <laughs> like the, there's a famous blessing in in the in Filler on the Roof that the rabbi says is like, may God guard and protect the czar and keep him far away from us. So, so it's like, may, may God keep him far away. And it's like, you know, may God keep you, but far away from me. I just don't, I don't want anything to do with you. And I think that is, that is a, a good forgiveness to people that are menacing or are not repentant or can, can hurt you again. So this is not a, a vulnerable position that you say, oh, you have to acknowledge that. And you still condemn the evil that was done. You just say, I don't want this to consume me. I mean, this is not a live issue. What's my response, given that this happened? Again, to responsibility. How am I going to move forward in a healthy way to be able to give love to other people? And as long as I have this black hole sucking all my energy inside and going to the dark side, I can't, I can't give love to those around me. And, you know, in a sense, the vampire that bit me won because now I'm turning into a vampire myself. I said, no, I need an antidote to that vampire bite because I've been bitten. We've all been bitten. We've all been hurt. We've all been trained in evil. We've all been exposed to evil. So we, we all have that potential. And the question is, how do I grow beyond it? How do I sow the seeds of love in my heart, in, in, in fertile ground, as opposed to get sucked into the underground of hell that awaits for anybody who doesn't heal? And we, we, I mean, this is a big challenge we all have. So I, I like to propose forgiveness as a measure of psychological uh, health for, my, for oneself and to create the world around you that is beautiful. People ask me, how do I change the world? How, I mean, I, say, I don't know how to change the world, but I know how to change my world. I, I know how to change my world. Only people I love are in my world. My world is pure love. Only, only love. And it's like, what do you mean? What world do you live in? Well, I live in the world of my friends. I mean, a, a person that is not worthy of that is not in my world. It's like my garden doesn't have any weeds. I'm not saying there are no weeds in the world, but there are no weeds in my garden. And I live in my garden. So in my, in my love world or my quality world, as a psychologist calls it, only, only invited guests can come in. There is no forced acceptance. There is... And, and there's no false exclusion. It's my world, and, and this it's my psychological, my spiritual world. And I feel like I feel blessed, I like, like talking to you. You're in my world. The program is in my world. Why? Because I, I appreciate what you do. I appreciate who you are. I appreciate the integrity with which you do it. I feel proud to introduce you to my friends. I feel proud to be associated with you. I'm not saying that to blow smoke up your ass. I mean, I'm just saying, this is the absolute truth. And if you weren't, I wouldn't work with you. Like I, I wouldn't do a podcast with you. I wouldn't do it. And, and it's as simple as that. So I'd say, yes, you know, there's, I live in a world that's full of love. And I'm, I feel incredibly blessed, but I have a guardian angel with a fire sword at the gate. And you can't stay there. Like if you lie, if you cheat, if you're a fascist, if you defend ideas that will hurt other people. I mean, I'll talk to you once about them. I'll try to reason with you. And at the end, you're entitled to your ideas, but I'm entitled to my world. So I'd say, like, have your ideas, but not in my world. Like, you, you want fascism? 
okay. I mean, I just don't, I don't, I, I don't want to use an expletive, but don't F with me. Like, you know, that's just like, be, be, be a fascist, create your world of fascism, but don't come, don't loot my store. Don't burn my building. Don't attack me. Because if you do, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call my angel with the sword of fire to keep you out of my world. And that's physical, it's emotional, it's psychological, it's spiritual. So when you have that, uh, like, like that clean boundary, you can still forgive the looters. Like, poor thing, it's like a mad dog. I, I mean, I'm not angry with the mad dog, but I'm not going to let a rabid dog inside my house without putting up a fight. I'm not angry with the dog. I can forgive. I, I feel sorry for the poor dog that, 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 that has rabies or has been infected by a pathogen. But that doesn't mean I'm going to say, oh, I need to love everybody. Yes, I love everybody, but at a distance. In my world, only the people that are worthy of that kind of respect. And it's incredible how powerful that is because it's humble, not imposing on anybody, but it's also very determined and careful of the boundaries. So I think good people have a responsibility to associate with good people. So we can create this, this circle of friends, of, of people that we, we encourage you on the path. I mean, you, you were talking to me about this climbing the mountain and, and Carl von Dunkheim, that, that he, he speaks about who is a true friend, who is a true community. Uh, today, we live in a world where the community is not a physical concept anymore, where we can have virtual communities. And you know, we can be in different countries, we can be in different time zones, we can be in different businesses, and yet, there's a current of goodness. There's a spiritual, philosophical, ethical current of goodness that makes those of us who swim in that current brothers and sisters. And it's it just nothing else matters. I mean, that, that's the only when people say, "What do you think about discrimination?" I'm, I very I discriminate violently. Like I, but I only have one distinction for discrimination: good people and evil people. That's the only distinction. Every other distinction is, is just part of the evil. So, so I don't care about anything else. <laughs> I mean, I mean the, the, the other things, of course, I notice them and they make a difference. They're, they can be beautiful. You know, there's, I, I understand the difference between Mexican food and French cuisine. But so th th that's, it's a difference that doesn't make a difference. The only difference between human beings that really makes a difference is love, respect, justice, truth, humility, responsibility. There are some people who live on this side. They're in, I would dare to say, our garden, because we, I think you and I share this garden. And then there are those who don't want to live like that and are more like weeds. And we, we don't want them in our garden because they, 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 they live off other good people. And you know, I, I love to, to, I want to take it back to you, this, this notion of, that I heard from, from some of my special forces friends. To say, you know, there's the sheep, there's the wolves, and there's the sheepdog. And somebody, th that's what I mean by the angels with the fire of sword that protect other people. The spirit of the protector that we all have. And it's, it's, it's the warrior spirit to say, no, there is something about protecting boundaries. We have to choose the right boundaries. But eliminating all boundaries is very dangerous. Like this idea, no borders. What do you mean no borders? You don't close the door of your house. I mean, anybody can come in your house. Anybody can sleep in your bed. No, yeah. I mean, you can't live like this. So, uh, I mean, you guys are protectors. So I, I would like to hear from you, I mean, the, the ethos of, of the warrior, but in, in your profession, because I, I admire that very much. 
Well, Fred, you know, you say, you, you, you say, you know, which I love and you were talking because I, I wanted, I wanted to go back to my favorite, you know, yes, yes. As you were, as, as you're highlighting Fred, as you're highlighting, uh, look, there's weeds in the world. We have to understand that that's the world we live in, but I'm not going to have them in my garden. And what, you know, quote unquote, your garden is what you talk about in the, in the military or special operations, then, I mean, ultimately that's, that, that, that's the truth for all of us, right? Regardless of our walk of life is in the military, you're saying you get given an area of operation and it's look, (laughs) there's weeds in the world, but they're not going to be in my garden. And that that's ultimately what you're saying. And and that's true whether you're talking about special operations, the infantry, the 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 military, the in any walk of life. But to your point, the the one that we most control and that we can control on a daily basis is ourselves. And and who is going to be in in our garden? Fred, I want to be respectful of your time and 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 but a couple of things I wanted to I wanted everybody to hear from you uh, before we wrap up here this morning. Commitments and the power of a commitment in not honoring commitments as it pertains to, you know, uh, ontological integrity. Uh, You had a story in conscious business that I'd love for you to share. And if you can't remember, I know it's been a number of years since you wrote the book. But again, I consider you to be uh, the most interesting man I know. Uh, and also one of the smartest. So you probably do. But in, in your section on commitments, you wrote about being in in Argentina growing up. You played a pebble game. And I guess, Fred, I guess in, in your mind, the cool kids had marble pebbles. And the other kids had pebble pebbles, rock pebbles. And you relate a story as it pertains to commitments and how it made you feel a broken commitment when you're in your grandfather's store and a vendor comes in and talks about can you can you tell that story yeah 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 i, I remember it I mean, it had a big impact on me it's one of those trivial things that gave a big lesson that i used many times in my life um well this guy saw me playing on the floor i was like five years old on with pebble pebbles as you say and i don't know i think he was boasting or wanted to um make a sale to my grandpa so so he said oh kid you know uh, you like playing this game dinenti it's called in argentina and i said yeah yeah i love the game and said well you're playing with those pebbles would you like the marble pebbles i was like oh my god yes yes my eyes rubbed like that it was so excited you were you were you were at that moment fred and again right i want to make you were like what you actually were when he said hey do you want marble pebbles you you were you were actually like yes 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 exactly yes yes that's right yeah that would be the exact time to put the music and i was i was like finally like oh i was thinking all the kids at school are going to want to play with me and so on and i can anyway i felt on top of the world and then he never brought them i mean it's just i saw him going around and and i remember i was I couldn't believe it. It's like this was the most important thing in the world. How how could he forget or how could he? So I asked my grandfather. I said, "Oh, you know, 
he was just probably talking, but don't worry about it. He forgot or he didn't mean it. I'm like, what? I mean, I, I was shocked, absolutely shocked. How can someone, I mean, maybe, you know, you, you can forget about bringing the, the goods to my grandfather, but how could you forget about the marble? I mean, you can forget breathing, but you can't forget about bringing me the marble pebbles to play. Uh, and, and I felt like nothing. Like I was nothing, literally a non-person. That when someone made a promise to me, it didn't count. Just as if you make a promise to a dog. You know, you tell the dog, yeah, I'll take you for a walk later. And I mean, I don't know, I, I used to talk to my dog. Um, and, you know, I later was undefined. And, you know, if I had too much work, then I let the dog in the yard, but I didn't take it for a walk. And I never felt like I dishonored that commitment because it's a dog. I mean, she was a dog. I love her, but she was a dog. I didn't feel I was obligated by a commitment. And it came to me when I had kids that, you know, I was treating my kids like dogs. And then I was becoming like that salesperson that would promise something and then take it as a non-promise. And I said, no more. When I give my word, it's unconditional. And what I mean by unconditional is not that I can always fulfill my word. Because what hurt wasn't, I mean, as I was a child, but the, the marble was second. What really hurt is he didn't care. He, he never talked. I mean, he saw me. It was like it never happened. And I said, you know, if he, he couldn't, let's just say he couldn't get the marble. It was too much trouble. If he had come and said, kid, I'm so sorry. You know, I promised you this. I tried, couldn't make it uh, some other time. That would have changed the story. I probably wouldn't forget. If that had happened, I would have—I I wouldn't remember. I would have forgotten. But the reason I didn't forget the story wasn't about the marble pebbles. The reason was, this is a person that treated me like a non-person. He was saying, "You don't count." And how many times I, I see? But then I see this in corporate America all the time. If you have enough authority, your underlings don't count. You just say things, or your customers don't count. Or your vendors don't count. Or you know, you you keep the money to to earn the interest and you pay them in 90 days instead of 30 days, as the contract said. You were well, you know, it's just a con. No, it's not the contract. It's your work, and and it's not like look, we don't have the cash. I need your help. How can we work this out? I'll pay you interest. No, it's just like not showing up, like nothing. Yeah, I mean, and, and if you challenge them, and say, oh well, don't worry, we screw everybody. It's not personal. We're not just screwing you. We do this to everybody. I, I like well. Those are the people who are not in my garden, but not the again. And 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 when I teach this and I try to coach people on this, it's really a mental shift because people say like, oh well, well, it's not such a big deal. Like, look, the content of your promise is not such a big deal, but your integrity and our relationship of trust is a huge deal. So I'm not challenging you because you didn't deliver. Let me be clear, because sometimes people say, well, you know, I couldn't do it because this happened. I said, look, I don't want to argue about that. Performance is second to me. What matters to me is trust and integrity. So here's my question to you. Why didn't you call me? I mean, that, that's the killer question. The killer question is not why didn't you deliver? Because there's always a good reason. But the killer question is what stopped you from sending me a text, a two-minute text about I'm not going to be able to deliver? What's your reason? There are some reasons, very few, but there are some ways like I was unconscious or I was in an emergency situation. I couldn't call you up to now. And I'm, and that, 
I mean, that preserves trust and integrity. That, that, that's what I mean by honoring your commitments as opposed yes. to fulfilling them. And see. yet we live in a world of so low integrity, but it's a huge opportunity because if you're known as a person that is trustworthy because you have integrity, you immediately distinguish yourself. Immediately you distinguish yourself as a leader. How are people going to follow you if you don't act with integrity? They will follow you in being criminals, in being frauds, because they will replicate or your children will do it. So it's not a small thing. And by the way, I am not sitting here in judgment. I, I will recognize my faults of integrity. I want to say I've grown in my life. So I'm not saying, oh, you know, I never broke my promise. I've always honored my word. I've always, but my God, I've suffered mightily for that. And I, 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 pay, I don't want to pay the price twice. So that, that, that's the learning orientation. You screw up, you suffer for it, you take it in, and then you learn, what am I going to do different? And I, I, one of the biggest things I learned is like, no more lies. I just, I just don't lie anymore. No, no matter what, I mean, no, I won't lie aggressively. If someone, like if a thief comes in my house and says, where's your money? I, I feel totally entitled to lie, I'm entitled to anything. You know, if somebody breaks that, that, that boundary of, of non, non-aggression, I will respond aggressively or I will respond defensively, but I won't. I don't lie to people. I just don't do it. There's, there's no justification. I'm telling you the truth. And how deep does that go? It really is a, it's a martial art. How much truth can you share? How much integrity? And if I make a promise, I can't guarantee I'll deliver it. But, but if I'm conscious, you're going to hear about, you're, you, you will hear from me before the deadline. Because the moment I, I know the promise is under risk, I'll let you know. And it sounds, when I, when I tell it, it sounds obvious. We break this principle a thousand times a day, everywhere, in every workplace. It's shocking. I would say, no, 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 but it's work. It's like, what's the difference? <laughs> what, what is that like? A, you, you get a magic space where your word doesn't count because it's work. No, it's not a promise promise. It's a work promise. What, what is that? I mean, there's no work promises. There's only promises. No, no, it's not a promise. It's a, it's a, it's a work commitment. It's the same. It's the same. Very few people live like that. So it's a huge opportunity on the other side to make a difference and to distinguish yourself. You, you, you say, you know, the reason why to this day it sticks with you is my commitment to you, my commitments to you don't count because you don't count. Exactly. And I thought about you as a young boy, and it's not just the vendor. It was also your grandfather who didn't also bring it up to you in that you see my commitments to you don't count. And you're a young boy because you don't count. Yes. I, I, I had to pause and reflect on that because, yes, we're talking. You call it conscious business. First of all, Fred, I should have started the cold conversation off of this. You call it conscious business. Fred, okay, that's you're lying, Fred, because that this book should be called Conscious Life. That that ultimately that's what it is. And um, and yeah. I, I did code uh, Fred because for anybody who reads it, Fred basically says that in the first line of the book, which is business is essential in our lives, uh, but it's not a work life balance. It's them working it, uh, in congruence with each other. But that piece of it, and we think about, well, hey, I've got to, business leaders think, oh my God, this person, 
uh, didn't honor their commitment to, to me. It's supposed to be here on Wednesday. It's still not here on Wednesday. Yeah, but it's not just commitments from your people to you. It's for you to your people. It's up and down, using a military term, up and down the chain of command, up and down. it. It's not just in business. It's to our children. And for me, as I read that, I thought, and most importantly, it's to my wife. Yes. And there was, you talked about impeccability, as you say, said in your in conscious business, impeccability in commitments is an unconditional discipline. Impeccability in commitments is an unconditional discipline. It doesn't depend on others. You behave impeccably because that is the way you want to live. Not in business, not in in life. And so true. Fred, two other questions, I promise. Okay. Number one, creating a culture of accountability. An example from the book, you highlight at the end of the seminar, I've been referring to throughout this chapter on developing a culture of accountability. I had a serious conversation with the leader. I explained to him that in order to kill the old unpredictive habit, unproductive habits and substitute them with new and more effective ones, he would have to make a stronger commitment. You go on to say, and this is why I wanted to talk about this piece, Fred, because we have so many college coaches, pro coaches, so many business leaders. They're taking over new programs, new divisions, new companies, and they're trying to change the culture. You go on to say, and you challenge this leader by saying, you, in order to kill the old unproductive habits and substitute them with the new and more effective ones, you have to make a stronger commitment. He says, what are you talking about? I've been following your instructions to the letter. I acknowledge that he had been acting as a role model of impeccability, but I added, you have not been acting as a leader of impeccability. What is the difference he challenged me? As a leader, I answered, you are not just responsible for doing it. As I hear that term, Fred, you're not just responsible for leading by example. And then you go on to say, but for holding others accountable for doing it as well. I see that you behave with integrity, but I not see you holding people accountable when they behave without integrity. And by the way, this is just one core value. Whatever your organization's core values are, you could substitute in for integrity. When they betray the company's values, you go on to say, and you don't do anything, you become their accomplice. He responds, but I've told them that their behavior is unacceptable. Yes, you've told them. Has it made any difference? Not really, he confessed. Then perhaps you need to take some action and establish real consequences. Fred? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, that's right, Fred. I, I mean, if that's that is something, Fred, that we are highlighting to parents. To starting, let's talk about our families with parents first and foremost. 
with teachers, coaches, business leaders. Well, hey, I told them. Now, how about you do something? Fred, what's, how can we establish that culture of accountability best? Well, doing the same right, thing. Let me ask a question to you. Hold on a second, because I kind of answered my question with having consequences. But in, in your book, though, you also highlight the importance of praise. Why, why Fred? Well, holding people accountable cuts both ways. So there's censorship, but also praise. So being reluctant to admire people or to express to them your gratitude or your uh, praise for, for their behavior, it's us, I would say, not conducive to establishing cultural values as not censoring them or expressing your displeasure or your uh, challenge for their failure to honor the values. So I think it's 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 two sides of the same coin. So I have I feel completely shameless in giving praise to people. I don't feel awkward and telling people I love what they did or how wonderful it is. Uh, and by the same token, I'm also not shy about saying this doesn't work for me or I I, I don't appreciate this or challenging, explain to me what's your logic to behave in this way when we've agreed to not do it. And uh, and people are shocked. I mean, literally, first they're shocked both ways. Because when I tell them, it's like, well, you know, you're kind of gruff and some, I don't know, now, now I'm, I'm more, more important, I mean, like famous or well-known. Before, nobody cared about me, but now I'm like, I'm pretty like, oh, you're so warm and we're so close to you and you were like, I mean, when I coach, I sometimes would teach. It's like, yeah, of course, well, you're in my garden, so to speak. So my predisposition is to invite everybody in. But I want, I would also tell people, like, look, I, I, I don't find it um, uh, like uplifting to interact with you, so I'd rather not. And just yeah. that, like, you're out. I was like, what? No, you, you can't say. <laughs> my wife looks at me like, were you angry? It's like, no, not very angry, but I, I'm not, I, I won't stand for this. And this is a problem of Argentinians, not a problem, but Argentina, uh, people from Buenos Aires were famous for being the smartest and the humblest people in the world. So we, we people joke about us being very, having a very high opinion of ourselves. They, yeah. they, like the, the best way to commit suicide for a, a porteño, a person from Buenos Aires, is to climb over his ego and jump from it. So, <laughs> like, so I, I actually do believe that not being in my world and not having me as a friend, it's a big threat, so to speak. So yeah. I, I think, I, I mean, I think I'm a good guy and I have yeah. a lot to add to other people's lives when I love them and I, I offer. So telling someone, look, you're not in my life, that's holding them accountable. That's the ultimate consequence. I am not aggressive. Like I, I don't punish people. Like I, I don't have time to hold grudges or punish people or wish them ill. In fact, I wish them well. It's just that I don't want you in my world. That, that's the consequence. Mm -hmm. So establishing that consequence as ultimately we are under test all the time. And I want friends to hold me accountable. Like I, if, if I behave in a way that you find uh, problematic, I want you to challenge me. And, you know, I think about it and say, shit, you know, you, you're right. I didn't notice or I, I, I'm wrong or and I, I try to. I, and it's not because I angered you. you. You might like tap me on the shoulder, Fred, I'm seeing you do this. Are you aware? I'll be like, oh, thank you for telling me. I, I, not, not angry. And 
I, I like to be around people that have this subtle, I don't know how to call it threat, that you know, if I screw up, if I don't act like that, then they will take me out of their world. That 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 helps. That that's a that's the real sense of community. It's not like, uh, well, we love you no matter what. It's like no, I I I won't love you no matter what. <laughs> I love you under it's conditional. It's uh, oh, but it's conditional love. Yes, it is conditional. I mean, you go insult people. I don't love you anymore. You go berate people. You dishonor people. You don't fulfill your commitments. Well. I mean, at, at some level, if I'm the boss, I'll take you out of my organization. But even if I'm not the boss, I won't do business with you or I won't be your friend or I won't interact with you at all. I was like, why? Because I don't find it pleasant. I mean, I don't have to explain myself to you. If this is not the way I want to live, you're not the kind of energy I want in my life. And that's all I need to say to you. So it is extremely important, not just to act in alignment, but you, you say the same. Like, I, I love... The, the, your book, sorry, you know, we're, we're going back and forth. I do admire it. That's why I, I hire you. And you say, you know, being, you, it's not enough to perform, but you have to hold your teammates accountable. That This is one of the biggest principles that you instill. I mean, what what is it to be a good team member? Well, you do your job and you perform what you commit to perform, but you also hold everybody else accountable to the standards of how we're pursuing the mission. And you, yeah. that, that's it. That's and of course, being a leader is a superset of being a good team member. You have to be, right. as a leader, you have to be a good team member. In addition, you have other responsibilities. You have to take That's care right. of the team and all these other things. But but the first principle is it's not enough to do your job. You have to look around and make sure every teammate is being held accountable and every teammate is going to hold you accountable. Those are, you know, to go back to your phrase, those are the teams that win championships. And this sure. is the team that I want in my life. Like it's a life sport team. It's not just about championships in sports or business or the military. It's everywhere. And Fred, as we talk, as we discuss, and look, holding people accountable, creating that culture of accountability. When people hear it, they think, okay, I'm not meeting the standard. I'm not meeting the standard, or they aren't meeting the standard, or that. And as we highlight, yes, if people aren't meeting the standards, yes, hold them accountable. By doing so, we're going to get to the top. We're going to get to the mountaintop. We're going to get to the summit. But the but the better job that we can do of also holding people accountable when they are meeting and exceeding the standards, we're going to get there quicker. And we're going to be able to stay there longer if we can do both. So don't just walk around looking for people who don't meet the standards. No, even more important, walk around and look for people who are meeting and exceeding the standards. And praise them. And actually praise them. It, it's so obvious when you say it, and yet it's so rare to observe. When, when you, I, I remember when you were facilitating uh, one of our corporate programs, uh, you did this spider web, uh, you know, this, this game where people have to cross through some spider web and not touch. And, you know, we were talking about integrity. I had taught these people said that. And I saw, I, with, with my own eyes, I was standing there, I saw someone touching and then looking around and then seeing that another person saw them and they both like looked at each other, but they, now the two looked around and nobody else saw them. So they didn't say anything. Yeah. I didn't say anything either. And then, I, I, you know, when we were doing the debrief, I said, did anybody touch? Did anybody notice they touched? And, you know, I saw this, these people squirming. Did anybody notice somebody else touch? 
And there were a lot more people squirming than these two. I just had seen these two, but a lot of other people. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not going to call out the people. You know who you are. And they actually stood out to their credit. They stood out and said, yeah, I, yep. did. I did. I did exactly that. But it was like, wow, we've been talking about it. We thought we understood. We are all committed. And they were true. I mean, like they, they, they're honest about their, their commitment. Like, yeah, they love the material. They said, yes, we're going to do it. That was in the morning. After lunch, it was the program. And this was an exercise. And they just couldn't. And then they realized, holy shit. We, we just did it. We just betrayed ourselves in the most abject way in, a, in an exercise that didn't matter. We was just like... And I said, what, what, what to, well, I didn't want to let my team down. So lying was the way not to let the team down. That's like when Maradona scored with his hand and everybody in Argentina was so proud. It's like, ah, the hand of God. And look, this, this is even better because he, he cheated and, and we won by cheating, which is even better than winning. I was so embarrassed. I couldn't believe it, but I was a traitor. And when I said, the people would say, well, what would you do? I said, sorry, Ref, I did it with my hand. I, I I said, what? And, and get the goal canceled? I mean, you're crazy. You're a traitor. I mean, this is the national team. You can't do that. It's like, of course I would do that. <laughs> but, but I mean, and they did it when it didn't count at all. And it was such a shock. It was the best part of the program yeah. because, I mean, the corporate program, because you put people in a situation where they saw that no matter how much cognitively they understood, integrity is a non-cognitive skill. It's a way to live. It's not that you have to think about it. Because if you think about it, there's always going to be a temptation to not do it. Because the, the, the reward and risk in the short term, it's always like what tastes good is not always good, but it still tastes good. And you know, you, you want Coke instead of uh, water. And the Coke tastes good. It's not going to quench your thirst or give you any nutritional calories, but it tastes great. And uh, people say, like, I want to win. And if I tell people that I touch, I lose all the points and the team is going to be angry with me. And uh, So, okay, it's a white lie. No, it's not a white lie. The way you do one thing is the way you do everything. And if someone sees you do that, you just gave the permission. Like, you say that, that your leadership standard is the lowest thing you accept. That's who you are as a leader. If you accept anybody lying, then you're a liar. It doesn't matter. And I, I, I live by that. I call it the... Uh, worst ball scramble in golf. Uh, it's something I wrote in my other book because I learned about golf later. It, there's a Texas scramble. You play golf with two balls and then you choose the best position one to continue playing. I say leadership is like worst ball scramble because you have, like, you're playing golf with five balls, but every time you choose the worst. So you, you have to be quite strict about your worst case person because the person in your team that's the worst, that's how good you are as a leader. And most of oh, I have this great performer. And so, no, the great performer is not the one. What matters is what's the worst person you allow in your team or in your world? Because that is the boundary that you hold. Right. So right. don't let it. And, and it, it, would, it reminds me of Fred here. And I promise you I've got one final question because I want to hear it is, but yeah. what it reminds me is that what we say Everybody's a hero when it's 70 degrees and sunny out. Yes. And look, we need them. We need great teammates and great team leaders when it is 70 yeah. degrees and sunny. We need great teammates and great team leaders all the time. But you only prove how great a teammate. You only prove how great a team leader you are when it's not. Yes, we have the right answer when about being, yes, integrity. Yes, yes, right, uh, 
right? You know, we have integrity. Yes, 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 integrity when we're in a climate-controlled room. But then we go out there and we're in the spider web, and now our teammates are looking, and we're trying to beat the opponent, and then we touch the wire. And then it's then that's when you prove how great a teammate and how great a team leader you are in those moments. Whether it's corporate, as I talked about before, the mistakes in my life, the great regrets I made in my life was in my own personal relationships. And uh, to, to that point, yes, we need great teammates and great team leaders all the time, but you only prove how great a one you are when you're when nobody's watching. Exactly. Now, Fred, one final question for you before we wrap up. And I really appreciate you taking this much time to talk to us. Talk to me. Makes I love it. Always makes me I a better. Love it. It's, it's In a dialogue. Business, you, you highlight the importance of emotional mastery. For us to live a conscious life. For us to be warriors. Players, not victims. To succeed beyond success. We must have emotional mastery. You, you, you highlight... It's a line I, I I love is emotions are good advisors, but terrible masters. Fred, talk about the importance of emotional mastery and, and how we can develop our own emotional mastery. Yeah. Um, well, I follow from that line. An emotion appears as an integration of, I would say, subconscious stimuli. So you, you, you can see some things, but then you, your attention is only able to capture about 1% or less. And it's a small fraction. There's a book called the 50 bits something. And it's like, you get like 6 million, uh, bits of stimuli at every moment and your attention can only catch 50 of 6 million so there's there's a lot that happens that impacts you but you're not consciously aware because awareness is is actually quite small compared to the space of unconscious awareness um so then suddenly you're afraid and you may not even know why you're so afraid or you're afraid of something more and that's there are two mistakes one is to say oh i shouldn't be afraid and then you disregard the advice of the emotion and the other mistake is like oh i'm afraid i need to run and then the emotion stops being your advisor and it's your master so for me emotional intelligence or mastery is to be centered and say okay oh i'm afraid interesting but i like i am noticing the fear again it's a question of my identity, who am I? Am I a big space of fear? And fear is all there is. Mm -hmm. uh, to quote a philosopher, German philosopher, fear is afraid, he says. He said, well, well, what does it say fear is afraid? Because there's no you left. Fear is afraid, there, there's nothing left. So you can only run because you're not there anymore. It's fear running. So I say, no, that's bad. But that doesn't mean there's no reason to be afraid. So if you find that balance and say, no, I am, the one that's noticing I'm afraid, just like you're watching a movie. Now, there, if you're watching a movie and you're thinking all the time, oh, it's just a movie, it doesn't matter, that's a bore. But if you get freaked out because, you know, 
the, the Indians are coming at you in the movie screen, like happened really. And then the cowboys that were sitting took their guns and started shooting at the screen. This is in the 1800s, you know, late 1800s, there was a, a famous uh, incident of this in the, in the West of the United States, that, that you're taking things too seriously. So being in the middle is like, okay, I'm afraid. Why am I afraid? What can I do about it? And then you, you take advice. So instead of no fear, I have this phrase, K-N-O-W fear, like no fear, like no, be, 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 befriend it, understand it, and understand that, you know, fear is the emotion that you feel when something valuable for you is at risk. So now you can ask yourself, what, what valuable thing for me is at risk now, because I'm afraid, and then what can I do to protect it? I say, mm -hmm. oh, but that's too cold. No, it's not cold. I mean, you are afraid. I'm not denying the fear, but I'm not controlled by fear. So it's a way to use the emotions or love or attraction. So, I mean, I, I can be attracted to something and I can feel temptation. I don't know, ice cream. I like, I like ice cream, but it, it doesn't sit well with me. I'm allergic to dairy and sugar is not really good for me. So I still want ice cream. So it would be foolish to deny. No, no, I don't want ice cream. That's a lie. I want it. But wanting it doesn't mean I'm going to take it. I, I'm going to eat it. So this, this idea of mastery has to do with the discipline to, to use the ice cream. I eat with my mind. I don't eat with my mouth. Because if I eat with my mouth, I'll take the ice cream. It's just the pleasure of the moment. I want the taste and the, the, the richness. But now even salivate, just talking about it, I, I can feel the saliva in my mouth. So there are physiological reactions to that. But I am not that. And that, yeah. that's the deepest, that's where you know, it becomes kind of a spiritual endeavor. I am not that. I am the one that notices that. And by noticing that, I can operate on that. I tell the story, I don't know if it's in that book or another, where I, I, I went into a movie theater with dark glasses. I mean, was, I took my kids one afternoon and it was sunny outside and I sat, and I, I was sitting in the theater and I, I was getting really angry, like really, really angry because the movie was too dark. And there were like, I don't know, 100 people in the theater and nobody was complaining. And, and I was with my small kids. I couldn't go out and say, you know, Jesus, I mean, doesn't anybody have a spine here? Why doesn't somebody stand up and go complain to the movie uh, owner to, or the, the theater uh, manager to, to light up the movie? I mean, this is too dark, too dark, too dark. And then it was like, whoops, <laughs> I realized I had my dark glasses. There was no problem. But I was, I was blaming everybody because I, I couldn't leave. And my kids were like three and five years old. Like I, I, I wouldn't leave the, 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 the room without my kids and taking them out. They would miss the movie. That's like muttering under my breath. I was like, ah, these people. And it's like, oops, it was, it was my own point of view. So when I took my glasses, I saw my glasses as opposed to seeing through the glasses and the difference is if you see through the emotion the world becomes colored by the emotion but you're unconscious of the emotion and then fear controls you or anger controls you mm -hmm. or temptation controls you or desire or um, um, sorrow and you you're overwhelmed or um, uh, abandonment I mean whatever whatever emotion it, it doesn't or, or joy and you're, you're you lose it because you're too happy and then you know, you don't complete the task because you think, oh, we're almost there, we're almost there. How many people fail in the last the last half inch because they thought that they had already won the race and it's not over until it's over. So being the discipline to say, no, no, no. This whole thing, 
I mean, I'm going to use an analogy. It's just a movie. Everything is a movie. I'm watching the movie and I can enjoy the movie, but I am not the movie. So I am the one that is aware and has to make a choice on how I'm going to respond. Again, to the issue of being a player and being responsible. So mastering the emotion is to simultaneously be able to fully experience it, accept it, be compassionate with yourself for feeling it. There's no shame. I mean, it's like having saliva in my mouth when I think of an ice cream. It's a physiological response. Or I don't know, I'm walking and, and I see an attractive woman. It's an attractive woman. It, it, I mean, I, I want to look. It's, it's, it's part of the male psyche that you will be attractive. But denying that, is, is, it has its own problems. But that doesn't mean that that attraction is going to turn into anything more than, than just to say, oh, I'm attracted by the ice cream. I'm not going to eat you. I'm attracted by this woman. Okay. How do I want to act about it? And depending on the circumstances of life, am I approached, not, or I may be attracted and afraid. And again, this is simply a, a fundamental principle that I am the one that has the opportunity to respond to the emotion. I'm able to respond. I'm not feeling guilty about the emotion, but I am the owner of my actions following the emotion. That, that's what I mean. I love, I mean, I, I feel, uh, I want to hear from you some story about how this emotional mastery, I know you've told me some amazing stories, but I want to hear more about how in your professional life, you know, you, you've had to, I mean, you, you can't be a, a commander of, of people in, in, in danger unless you are mastering your emotions. Because without that, I mean, you take people into death, not into danger. So I'd love to get you to close this. Like, I want to raise my hand. And, and I, I mean, I don't have the music, but I, I've done this to you many times. So I want to hear one illustration from your life. Fred, I think the most, the, the, I'm going to use the, this, again, I'm going to keep going back to it because the single most important relationship I have in my life is the one with my wife. Mm -hmm. And my life is what it is, I consider myself to be the luckiest man in the world. Uh, everything I have, I give her credit for, not just materially, although yes, that too, but the happiness I have with my children and our family. And, and but because she's the most important, I, we also have the most emotional because we care deeply about each other. We care deeply about our children. We care deeply that the things that we care most deeply about, we also are most emotional about our children, yes. our, our families. And when I think of emotional mastery and where it would help benefit me the most, it's that right there. And where do I fail in it? It's right there. Now, people who work at the program with me, they'll probably say, oh, Cap, we'd like to be on that list of where you need to improve your emotional mastery. And they're, they're, they're not wrong. So certainly there as well. But, you know, Fred, as, as, as we discuss it, as I'm sorry, as you discussed in your book, if we can go into any of those areas where emotions are, as I highlight in my, in, in my presentation of corporations about physical, mental, and emotional toughness or resiliency. I highlight climbing Mount Everest. To me, people tell me, oh, climbing Mount Everest, it's all mental. I look at them like, you've obviously never 
effing climb Mount Everest. Because, right, right, I mean, Aconcagua, climbing Aconcagua is not all mental. No, in fact, to me, it's 95% physical. It's 5% mental. That 5% mental is what can kill you, though. And then I go on to say, Fred, that now look, regardless of whether you're talking about climbing Mount Everest, climbing Aconcagua, a a game you're going to play in, a business meeting, a relationship you have with your wife and your children, all of our lives, regardless of what percentage they are physical and mental, our lives are 100% emotional. And the best teammates and the best team leaders are emotionally tough. And what do we mean by emotionally tough? We all get natural human emotions, don't we, Fred? I mean, unless you're a psychopath, I mean, you're going to get natural human emotions. You're going to get fearful. You're going to be afraid at times. God knows, Fred, the number of times I've been afraid in my life. I mean, they're they're too numerous to count. And by the way, that I've been angry with my wife. Too numerous to count. But if we can have in those emotional situations that we find ourselves in, if using your words, and it's why it changed my life, Fred, why your book changed my life. If we can have, if we can go into this situation with a feeling of mutual learning, right? Not unilateral control, as you highlight, not, hey, I'm going to prove myself right. Instead, let's go into this with mutual learning. Hey, I'm going to... This is my truth. I know you have a different truth. So let's just learn from each other so that we can get to a better place here. That this, as you highlight as well, friction. Friction can make things grind to a halt. It can also produce great heat. So this this challenge that we're faced with, what a great opportunity. Our relationship can be better if we handle this correctly. If we, But to handle it correctly... We must have emotional mastery. And the way that we describe it at the program, and and you talk about it so eloquently in conscious business, is we all get these natural human emotions. When we do so, take one deep breath. And look, for some of us, it may be 10,000 deep breaths, right? But take one deep breath. I'm angry at my wife. Take one deep breath. And in that one deep breath, think. And that's the key word. Think. How do I best respond to this natural human emotion that I'm feeling that will best help my team of my wife and I, of my special operations unit and I? How do I best respond to this natural human emotion that will best help my team accomplish its mission? Yeah. That's how we define it, Fred. That's beautiful. Deep breath. But so so many people, Fred, right? They're emotionally driven. Um, I'm I'm angry and I yell. Well, no, you're angry and you make a choice to yell. And again, right, Fred, to to what you said is, well, I didn't make a choice. It just came out. Yeah, well, that's a choice then. So instead, take one deep breath and think. Always think, how do I best respond to ensure my team best accomplishes its mission. And Fred, ultimately, if we can do that in everywhere in our lives, then talk about what's the goal of life? To be happy. To be happy. And our doing so will allow us to live a life of happiness, especially if, as in my case, 
we can surround ourselves with other individuals who've made that same choice. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to this, finish with a disagreement. I want to say something, slight disagreement with you, which I tell everybody. Um, my book didn't change your life. You changed your life. My book was an invitation for you to change your life. And I feel, I would feel embarrassed if I changed anybody. That's definitely not what makes me happy. This is not the point of my life. When I think, what is the mission of my life? Viktor Frankl said, you cannot be happy by trying to be happy. You become happy by having a noble mission. And then as you pursue that, then you're happy. But it, your mission cannot be happiness. And my mission is not to change people's lives. I, I hate it when people say, oh, I'm here to change people's lives and we're going to build this company and change the world. I want to be an invitation for people to reflect and choose how they want to change their lives. So it makes me very happy. But, but I invite you to, to say it that way. Like if you want to praise me, uh, say, you know, by reading your book, I decided to change my life in some aspects that are helping me flourish. Because that is the ultimate blessing that I think one human being can give to other, to be an opportunity for flourishing. I know you do it. I know your company does it. I, I do it. I mean, any coach worth his salt, any therapist, any, any business wants to improve the lives of its customers. So the business doesn't improve the life. The business is an opportunity for the customers to use the services and goods to improve their life. And, and I think this is the biggest blessing we human beings to be, we can give one another, we can be a space in which the other person flourishes by friendship, by love, by truth, by justice. And that's the sense of community. So I, I, I feel honored and I, uh, I invite you to use that phrase that is like, yeah, you know, we don't change each other's lives, but we as, as warrior brothers, uh, we, we are an opportunity for other ones, like our brothers and sisters to change their lives and this pot, this this invitation this 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 conversation i like to keep it like that an invitation for people to reflect and say oh i'd like to do something reading your book reading my book working with us or anybody that um, that's what i feel most proud of and being friends no disagreement agreed thank you fred in closing i want to use a few of the quotes you used in your own book in closing to thank you. You highlight Karlfried Graf von Durkheim, German diplomat, psychotherapist, and Zen master in Friends of the Way. The man who being really on the way, capital W, the way, the man who being really on the way falls upon hard times will not turn to that friend who offers him refuge and encourages his old self to survive. Rather, he will seek out someone who will faithfully, inexorably help him to risk himself so that he may endure the suffering and pass <coughs> courageously through it, thus making of it a raft that leads to the far shore. Thank you for being that, Fred. Thank you for being that friend to me, Fred. You go on to say, you quote author Carlos Castaneda in The Journey to Ixlan. 
knowledge will change your idea of the world. That idea is everything. And when that changes, the world itself changes. Fred, thank you so much for sharing that knowledge with me, as you always do, and today with all of us. For our listeners, to sign up for our monthly letter on leadership, and to learn more about the program and our leadership development and team building services for your own team, go to www.theprogram.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the program org and on Facebook at the program org and at we do one more. And on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash the dash program dash LLC. Be great teammates and great team leaders on all of the teams of which we are privileged to be a part. Until next time, thank you and attack. Yes, Fred. Yes. Yes. Until the next time, thank you and attack.